Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for this time together, thankful that we can come together to worship. Father, you are our rock, our refuge, and our shield. So Lord, I pray that you'll draw our hearts towards you this morning. Father, fix our eyes upon your beauty and your glory. Father, far too often we can become confused and distracted because we've fixed our eyes on other things. So Lord, fix our eyes, fix our hearts upon you this morning. And Father, we see who you are through your revealed word, and we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for your word. It accomplishes all that it intends. Every single time you send out your word, you accomplish your plans and purposes. So Father, we thank you for what you are doing. Lord, I pray even now as we look at your word in Matthew, that we remember not only the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but we will remember that he is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus. He truly is the son of God, the son of man, who came to seek and save the lost. And Lord, we are of that, that, of those people. We once were lost, but now are found. So Lord, we are so thankful that we have come to worship you this morning. Lord, I pray that you will teach us your ways. Sanctify your people. Make us more like Christ. Lord, I pray for those who have been members of this church for many years, that they might be encouraged through the fellowship and the worship together of the saints. Lord, as we come together, we come together as a family. I pray for those who are new members and those who are even visitors this morning, that they might see the beauty of your word, they might see the love of your people, and they might see the love of God on display as the church loves one another. Father, we thank you for this time together. I pray that you will teach us to trust in you when we are tempted to trust in our circumstances, in others, or in something else. Father, I pray that you will remind us that you are worthy of our trust and worthy of our praise. Father, teach us to love you and to love one another. Father, we thank you for these things. Lead us by your Spirit. I pray even now that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Indeed, you are my Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. And Father, we thank you for all that you have done. As the psalmist says, come and see the wondrous deeds of the Lord. So Lord, I pray that we have come this morning to see what you have done and what you are doing. Because Father, we are a hopeful people that you are not done with your people and you are not done with your church. So Father, continue your plans even today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you are doing well this morning. Hope you got a good night's sleep, good night's sleep or caffeinated or combination thereof. And turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We are going to be looking just at the first part of this chapter. We we'll might pick up the second part next week or just touch on it. And we're going to look at the temptations of Jesus. When I say the word temptation, what comes to mind? Some people are already laughing. They're thinking of different temptations. Maybe chocolate in the middle of the night. Maybe the internet. Maybe social media or status, what others might think of us. Maybe money, power, prestige. These can all be temptations that pop up suddenly 
or can it accrue over time? Sometimes we think temptation is just that sudden thing that pops in front of our eyes, but temptations can accrue over time. Either way, we all realize, this is not a surprise, that temptation is common to man and woman. We all face temptation every single day. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10 later at the end of the sermon. But we're going to look at how Jesus faced temptation this morning as we look at Matthew 4, the first 11 verses. Would you stand with me, please, as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word? Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The word says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is probably not the first time you have heard this passage. Probably not the first time you have read this passage. We've probably read this passage several times, but in studying it, we have much more to learn as we think about what Jesus did in overcoming temptation. In fact, he was sinless, but also what that means for us. How do we overcome temptation? What is our hope in the midst of the battle? But right off the bat, we're going to go through this quickly. There's a lot to be said, and that's why we we um, cut it off at verse 11, because there's so much to be said about this passage. But right off the bat we see Jesus is led by the Spirit. Now that's not surprising, that's not alarming, because again, the Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He is fully God. But what is surprising is where the Spirit leads Jesus. Where does He lead Jesus? Into the wilderness. This is the surprising part. Why would He, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Now that's surprising in and of itself. What gets to become even more alarming is why he leads them him there. It says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for a specific purpose to be tempted by the devil. Now it starts questions start to you know come into my mind. Why? What is this about? What is taking place here? Why would the Spirit do this? Why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Now, before I start to come with different calculations, I will say right off the bat, it can be a dangerous thing to try to peer into the mind of God, so we do not know all that's going on here. 
We do not know the entire rationale for why the Spirit sends Jesus to be tempted by the devil, but we do know this, that through the temptation, Jesus did not sin. Amen? Amen. So our Savior, the High Priest, the perfect mediator, Redeemer, and our friend did not sin through temptation. Hebrews 4 tells us this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Rather, we have a high priest and a Redeemer who in every aspect, every aspect, as has been tempted as we are. So talking about His humanity, Jesus is fully man. He was fully man. The Word became flesh. He was tempted in every way as we are, but He is not like we are because it says He did not sin. So He is fully God, fully man. The fully God-man did not sin. So this is an amazing account of Jesus' ministry or the beginning of His ministry. But what's amazing is He has gone into the wilderness as the Spirit has led Him to be tempted by the devil, and this comes on the heels of His baptism. Remember last week we talked about John the Baptist coming, um, preaching, teaching, preparing the way for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist's message was centered around three things. I don't have anything to bribe you with. I don't have chocolate. But does anybody remember what those three things were that John the Baptist focused on? Repentance. I think everybody said repentance at once. That's good. Uh, number two, another one. God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Those are the two I kind of emphasized last week. And then the third one is what was he known as? John the Baptist. And so he also focused on baptism. So Jesus is baptized right before he is tempted. And so Jesus, again, as he's baptized, he fulfills the Father's plan. He fulfills all righteousness in obeying the Father. We see Jesus is baptized in verse 16 of chapter 3. And as a Baptist pastor, again, I think this is one of the passages that refers to immersion and baptism. As We see him come up out of the water. As he comes up from the water, the Spirit of God comes down to rest on Jesus. And we see that Jesus can rest in his obedience as the Father affirms him and delights in him. So I think it's unique that the Father is affirming him and delighting in him right before he's tempted, right before he faces Satan, the devil, the tempter, the accuser, the murderer, the one who's going to question his very beginning, or his very name and identity, right before that, we see Jesus is baptized. And at the end of chapter 3, what did the Father say of the Son? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. He delights in the Son. The Father delights in the Son. So we must remember these words and remember who he is, or Jesus remembered who he is as the Son of God as he's about to face temptation. A quick word about temptation as we go through this chapter. We must remember what James says. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. So there's several passages in Scripture that talk about the testing of trials, uh, that some are the work of God and some are the work of the devil. But while God tests believers, he does so in order to purify them, in order to strengthen them. Satan, on the other hand, he seeks to destroy believers. He seeks to manipulate believers. He seeks to distort the truth. 
So temptations, particularly these here in chapter 4, are the work of Satan as he ultimately tries to seduce and manipulate those who seek to follow God. Now ultimately, Satan, the devil, is underneath the hand and power of God. So God is sovereign over what Satan does. And so God is in control of all that is about to take place. But let us see what the tempter, what the devil does here in this passage. Look with me in verse 3. After Jesus is led into the wilderness, we read these words. The tempter came and said to him, and said, If you are the Son of God, it was me, I wouldn't have let him continue. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So this is the first temptation. And obviously it's tempting. Why? Jesus is hungry. He's famished. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. If I miss a meal, my stomach tells me so. And so Jesus is famished. He's hungry. And now the devil comes seeking to try to quench his hunger. But the devil begins with these words, If you are the Son of God. How dare the devil speak that way to the Son of God, speak that way to the King of Kings? We know the devil to be a liar, an accuser, and a manipulator, and he will get his due for his ways. But now we must read and respond to the deceitful ways the devil comes at Jesus. But you and I must also be prepared. Again, let us not distance ourselves from the text. If the devil will come and accuse Jesus, you must be prepared. He's going to come and accuse you as well. So let's see how Jesus responds. In the first of these temptations, the devil tempts Jesus with bread, and we see that bread is a good thing. It is food. God gave manna to the Israelites to show that he provided for them, and so Satan thinks that he can mock God by offering bread to Jesus. Well, does Jesus fall for this trap? Of course not. Jesus will not be manipulated by the devil, even in the midst of great hunger. Jesus will not abuse his power, and he will not submit to the devil during his weakest hour. So look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, it is written in verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A friend of mine once said, Satan comes and says these three words. Is it written? With that question mark. Jesus comes and says these three words, it is written. So there's no question about who God is and what he has said and what his plan is for us. We must not question God's word. He is true, and Jesus reminds us that his word is truth. You and I must be reminded from Jesus' response here what we should truly be dependent on. Yes, we need bread. Yes, we need water to survive. But we need the word of God to truly live. Jesus reminds us through his response to the devil that God always provides. As he speaks here and as he says, man shall not live by bread alone, he's probably even thinking back to the Israelites and how God provided for them and is reminding us that God is watching over us. And so, yes, Jesus will provide. He provided for the Israelites. Yes, he provided for the Son. And again, he provides for you and for me. In verse 5, look with me as we continue on in this passage. The devil takes him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, 
Again, I've read this passage several times. I'm sure you've read this passage several times. But this particular verse stood out to me as I studied it. Look at what the devil does. He uses religious things for his own purpose. Now, maybe that struck me at one time, but it didn't until this past week, that the devil uses religious things, religious cities, religious connotations for his own purpose. We see this here in verse 5, that the devil takes him to Jerusalem, often referred to as the holy city. He's like, here, here you are in Jerusalem. And he takes him there to allure him. Then he takes him to the top of the temple in order to manipulate him. And what is he doing? It's like trying to coax him into this level of comfort. I'm not a bad guy. I'm here taking you to Jerusalem, putting you on the temple. And these things are not bad. Aren't these things that your father even delights in? So again, the devil is seeking to manipulate us and deceive us in verse 6. What does the devil say? He says, if you are the Son of God again, questioning Jesus' identity, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So don't worry. You're not in danger. No harm will happen to you. I mean, you believe God's word, right? I mean, these are things that I'm assuming that he is thinking. But again, remember what James 2 even says, you believe that there's God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So the demons, the devil, knows about God, knows about his way, and he will even quote and misuse Scripture. This is why it's so important to focus on the truth and fight with the Word of God. We must focus on the truth and fight with the Word of God. And this is what Jesus does. He reminds the devil and he reminds you and I that we must not put the Lord our God to the test. He says again, it is written, devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In short, we are not God. You are not God. I am not God. There is only one God, the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is he that we are to worship. So we must be thankful for God's promises, but we must not abuse them or distort them for our own gain. I've heard of people playing with God's promises, claiming God's promises. I mean, it is good to believe in God's promises and to trust in them, but I've heard people even distorting things, saying, and maybe adding to God's promises, like, if God will do A or B or C, then I will follow him. We must be very careful in turning God into uh, a genie. We must not distort his word or his promises. So we see here, God has given us everything we need. He's given us His Son. And His Son reminds us to not put the Lord your God to the test. Look with me at the last temptation in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Jesus could have said, we don't need to go on the track. I can show them to you now if you need to. But he didn't do that. Um, the devil knows that man lives for his own glory. Men and women seek to steal glory from God. So now the devil is playing games with Jesus. First, he gives two offers. The first temptation, if you're the son of God. The second temptation, if you're the son of God. Now with the third temptation, there is not an, just an offer. There is a demand. What is the demand? 
What is the devil asking for? He's asking for Jesus to worship him. How blasphemous. But that's the demand. This isn't a subtle negotiation game. This isn't Priceline. But here we see that Jesus knows who we are to worship. Jesus is not deceived by this demand. It's really no offer at all. What does Jesus own? As Michael pointed out, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus owns it all. So Jesus like saying to the devil, that's it? That's all you've got to offer me? I wasn't listening in the first place. Jesus is not distracted by temporary power and worldly glory. Jesus knows glory. Hebrews reminds us he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus does not submit to Satan, and he shows his authority over Satan and sin. The good news is Jesus overcomes temptation, but it's also good news for us as we seek to overcome temptation. We do not have to live for worldly desires or get-rich-quick schemes. That is not what we live for. Listen to this quote by Russell Moore. Dr. Russell Moore is right on as he says this. He says, you will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. That is powerful. At the core of these temptations, we, we, are, we are tempted in essence to say, I can, I am God, or I can be God, or I can do this, or I can control this. But again, if we are a Christian, a Christ follower, then we must remember we have a Father who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us, who watches over us, who doesn't sleep or slumber, who's not caught off guard, and who knows all that we need. So we see here, we are not to settle for gods or idols that promise everything and leave you with emptiness. Again, Dr. Moore says this, Whatever the desire for food, for attention, for admiration, for adventure, for fame, for security, for whatever it is that you crave at the moment, once it's redirected away from its intended end, it becomes a master. So again, if we are in Christ, I'm speaking to those who are Christians, Christ followers this morning, if you are in Christ, you have a master. You have a master. Jesus is our Savior, Redeemer, and Master. He shows us what we are to seek, where to seek the kingdom of God. He shows us what glory we are to long after, the glory of God, not the glory of man. Jamie Owens recently wrote this. He says, One of the wonders of God's grace is that in Christ, He shares freely with us the glory that we spent our lives trying to steal. How ironic. Jesus knows the devil offers Him nothing. You have no power. You have no authority. You have nothing in comparison to my Heavenly Father. So in verse 10, as the temptations come to a close, Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus puts Satan in his place, away from the presence of holiness. 
Jesus tells us who worship is reserved for. Worship is reserved for God because he's worthy of our worship. He's the only true God. Worship is not merely something that we attend on Sunday morning and say, okay, well, I'll get back to that again next Sunday morning. Yes, we worship here, but not only here. We worship all of the time. Jesus reminds us as we worship God, we love God, we live for him, and we serve him. Bob Coughlin says, worship is about what we love, what we live for. It is about who we are before God. One of the key things, one of the key key themes, I don't have three points this morning um, per se, but one of the key themes I want you to see in the first 11 verses is our identity. Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And if we see our identity in Christ, we can overcome temptation as we trust in God. So again, worship is about what we love, what we live for. It's about who we are before God. The more you know God, this is a direct correlation, the more you know God, the more you love God, and the more you worship God. This is truth. So the more we know God through his word, the more we will worship him as our creator and redeemer. So Jesus teaches us what worship looks like. He's able to resist the temptation of the devil by trusting his father's plan and remembering what his father said. Remembering, again, that he is the son of God. Jesus' identity is questioned twice by the devil, but Jesus remembered who he was. You must remember who you are. So you must say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, therefore I can resist my fleshly desires. Or I'm a Christian, therefore I will love God. I'm a Christian, therefore I will love others. You've heard me say this before, but it's a common thing that some people say. It's like, well, I love God, but I just don't love others. You can't say that. If you love God, you must love others. Because Jesus says you have to even love your enemies. That doesn't mean that we're perfect at doing so, but we don't have an option. When we don't, we must repent again and seek God's face. When we understand our identity, you will focus on not what others think or say about you. I'm so thankful for Michael's prayers. He talked about our relationship with God and with others. That when we think about who we are in Christ, we no longer seek to please and perform for others. If I'm seeking to get my identity from you, I will watch you too closely. I will listen to you too intently, and I will need you too fundamentally. I will wrap my whole identity around you instead of around God. Paul Tripp says, either I get my identity vertically out of my sense of who God is and who he has made me in Christ, or I will seek to get my identity horizontally And when you seek to get your identity horizontally, what happens is you will focus on your identity out of your circumstances, your relationships, or your successes. So that's why on Facebook, people update things when everything is going well. You know, you don't see things, well, the house is a mess today, and I had two flat tires, and the checkbook won't balance. Um, You know, you don't put those things on Facebook because you want to show others, look, I'm successful. Things are going well. Um, you point, put pictures up of you on vacation. 
not you at 6.30 in the morning. So again, who you are in Christ is where you must get your identity. You are no longer a slave to your former manner of life. You and I must see that we were bought with a price. We've been changed. We've been redeemed. So when you repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel brings you hope because you no longer live for the passions of the world, but for the glory of God. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians 1 says this, You, you who are in Christ, in Christ is a common theme in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, you who are in Christ, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now we have the hope of the gospel. We've been changed. We've been redeemed. We now live for God and his glory. Let me encourage you with this booklet. I didn't have time to make copies of this this morning, but if you'd like a copy, we can get a copy of of you. This is written by another brother in another church down in Birmingham, but it's just simply called Who I Am in Christ. And basically, it's just scripture after scripture after scripture. But let me read a few to you. He says, I am God's possession, 1 Corinthians 6. I am God's child, John 1. I am God's workmanship. I am God's ambassador, 1 Corinthians 5.20. I am God's chosen, Ephesians 1.4. I am God's heritage, 1 Peter 5. And then the next section, I have been redeemed by the blood, Revelation 5. I have been set free from sin and condemnation. I have been set free from Satan's control, Colossians 1 verse 13. I have been set free from Satan's kingdom, Ephesians 2. Another section says, I am complete in him, Colossians 2. I am free forever from sin's power, Romans 6. I am sanctified, 1 Corinthians 6. I am loved eternally. I am kept from falling, Jude chapter, or, uh, verse 24. I am kept by the power of God, 1 Peter 1. I am not condemned, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. And on and on it goes. I'm hidden with Christ in God, Psalm 32. There's many, many more. And it talks about who we are and how we are accepted and how we are secure in Christ. So if you'd like a copy of this, let me encourage you to ask me about it later. But as we see these temptations, we must remind ourselves, Jesus is the Son of God. We must remind ourselves, we are in Christ. So we are no longer held by the sway of the devil's power. Now let us look at the last verse in verse 11. After Jesus rebukes Satan, after he tells him to get lost and be gone, now the devil leaves him, of course, he has no choice. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So when the devil leaves, we see who does not. God is there. God is right there as he sends angels to minister to Jesus. We see here that God protects his son. We see that God provides for his son. And God is preparing him for what lies ahead. His ministry that will unfold in chapter 4, as we continue in chapter 4 next week. Let me close with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
I know you've probably heard this. Many of you may have memorized this verse. If you haven't, let me encourage you to commit it to memory. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise God. Through Jesus Christ, we can escape temptation. Let us pray.